Well, a very good morning to you all. Uh, my name's Stuart Holman, if we haven't met before. We are this morning uh, continuing our series in John's Gospel, so c- please keep your Bibles open at that last uh, passage. Good testimony is to be believed and it is to be acted upon. Uh, over the past few years in Australia, we have asked for testimony of a very serious nature. There have been 136 royal commissions in our nation's history and none more important than the inquiries into institutional responses to child sexual abuse as well as misconduct in the banking and finances industry, both of which finished taking testimony this past year, 2018. And we now have a new Royal Commission into aged care, quality and safety, which I'm sure we're going to hear about in this new year coming. The testimony in these Royal Commissions is sometimes quite shocking and the truth can be hard to hear and yet such truth must be heard and it must be acted upon. This morning I want us to know that the testimony of John the Baptist is no less important and no less shocking than any of those uh, testimonies before the Royal Commissions. As we step into the first major unit of John's Gospel, John's testimony becomes front and centre. It is to be heard, it is to be believed, and it is to be acted upon. And so we've just finished the prelude, uh, John 1, verses 1 to 18. And now, verse 19, we step into the narrative. It's about... 27, the year 27 or so, and a nation's eyes turn to a prophetic figure who has appeared preaching and baptizing in the Jordan near Bethany, about nine kilometers north of its entry into the Dead Sea. And as we've already heard in this series, there were no greater religious figures at that time than John, John the Baptist. After four centuries of silence, here at last, was a proper Jewish prophet. He looked like one, he acted like one, he certainly spoke like one, and he called everybody to repentance. But as the prelude to this gospel has already told us, the Baptist's main role is actually testimony. So if you flick back to verse 6, you'll see uh, that we're told, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Here is an eyewitness to God's work. He has a testimony. It has to be heard. We need to hear it. But actually, we will hear it through a kind of formal investigation, something like a royal commission, which is recorded for us here in John's Gospel. So in verse 19, if you have a look at it there, you'll see that the religious leadership of Jerusalem conducts an inquiry into John the Baptist. Who is he? Who were the Jews of Jerusalem, first of all, that they would send this inquiry? Most likely we're talking about the Sanhedrin here. There's, there's lots of different religious groups and, and parties which we're going to meet in John's Gospel. But the overarching body that governed Jewish life and religion under the Roman occupation, that was called the Sanhedrin. And their first representatives, as it were, appear in verses 90 to 23. They represent the Jerusalem priests and Levites. They're the group who had hold, had uh, sway over the temple. And this group of people actually lived in a pretty difficult spot. They lived in the tension between 
Roman occupation, King Herod and his patronage, and then their own sacrificial and ceremonial duties that they had in the worship of God. They lived in this strange tension. And then after them, in verse 24, comes a second delegation. And they're representing the Pharisees. They're a different party within the Sanhedrin. They're the kind of far right-wing group, if I could put it that way. They're, they're strict. They're much more conservative in their interpretation of the Scriptures. Like many witnesses before a royal commission, John the Baptist tells the truth, but he doesn't divulge all that he knows. He's careful with the truth, not necessarily to deceive, but he's being asked all of these questions about himself. And he knows that his job is actually to direct attention onto somebody else, someone whom he has been sent to reveal. And so that explains his three denials. Have a look at verse 20. Uh, John did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So John denies that he's the Messiah, or that he's Elijah, or that he's the prophet. They are three very important Old Testament figures, and they're worth actually a bit of a quick investigation because they throw light on some very important aspects of John's testimony. First of all, John denies that he is the Messiah, which is the Hebrew equivalent word for Christ. Okay? Messiah, Christ, same thing. Uh, well known to us as Christians, very well known to the Jews of Jesus' day who were soaked in Isaiah's prophecies. Who is the Messiah, you would ask? And they would easily say, oh, he is a ruler born from King David's line. He was expected to deliver God's people from all oppression and then rule over a united Israel who would actually influence the whole earth with their power. John says, no, I'm not that guy. I'm not the Messiah. Universally agreed. The next denial, though, is a bit tricky. The prophet Malachi created the expectation that the great prophet Elijah, whether somehow resurrected or, or, or a type, a similar kind of prophet, would come immediately before the Messiah's arrival in the day of the Lord. And in a sense, John's ministry of baptizing and preaching of repentance would easily have been seen as turning the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to the parents. But John says, no, I'm not Elijah. It's a bit tricky because everyone else thinks he is. That he is this Elijah figure. John's mother, Elizabeth, before he was born, actually prophesied that he would prepare the way for the Lord, like Elijah. Um, in each of the other three Gospels, Jesus himself says, he's the Elijah. Obviously, there was a lot of public speculation around it as well. But John never says of himself, I'm the Elijah. Instead, he just seems not at all interested in his own significance. He is disinterested in any speculation about who he might be. He knows very clearly what God has called him to do, and that was it. All he really cared about was the one who was to come. And so he could deny being the Elijah with a very clear conscience simply because God hadn't told him that that's who he was. Well, there's a third denial that John makes there, also relating to an Old Testament figure, someone called the prophet. And this prophet 
came from the book of Deuteronomy, and the prophet was a new Moses, someone just like Moses who would lead the people to salvation, and he would speak directly from God. In many minds, the new Moses and the Messiah, probably the same person. And so in verse 22, those three denials leave the priests and the Levites kind of frustrated. They've come to ask these questions and they've got nothing to take back to the Sanhedrin. And so John, when pressed, finally gives them this answer in verse 23. He replies in the words of the prophet Isaiah. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John turns all of our attention straight to that passage which you read a little earlier in Isaiah 40. That prophecy comes from a time in Israel's captivity. They were exiled far away in Babylon. It's about the 6th century BC. John won't accept any other identification, but he knows I'm the one announcing the coming of the Lord to his temple. It's one of the big promises of the Old Testament. Uh, it launches the second half, if you like, or the second part of Isaiah's book. And the reader is told, basically, God is coming back. He is returning to his temple. Let's make a royal highway to get the place ready for him. Every time I travel the mighty M1, it doesn't look like that anymore. It's got traffic, right? I remember, though, make every valley raised up. Uh, you know, cut through every mountain, make the road flat. This is a highway for a king, in a sense. In the prophecy, you might have noticed that Isaiah uses God's personal covenant name, Yahweh. <clears throat> John is saying, Yahweh is coming. You know, in your Bibles, whenever you see the word the Lord in capitals like that, you see that there? It's actually translating the most holy of God's names, if you will, revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Staggeringly, John is saying, Jesus, who's coming, is Yahweh. We hear echoes of verse 1 of this gospel. The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is this Yahweh, the God of all of the Old Testament, the God of covenant, the God of promise. So the people are supposed to hear John and get ready because God is coming. And when he does come, says John, he will reveal his glory. We thought about this as we looked at John verse one eighteen. Uh, John one eighteen. God's personal presence and glory is not something that you take lightly. In a sense, we're taken back in our minds to Israel's Exodus uh, time when when they were leaving Egypt and walking through the wilderness, where God's personal presence was with His people. It was actually visibly represented in, by by day in in a, in a pillar of cloud, oh, sorry, a, a cloud and then a pillar of fire at night. And then later on, when the temple was built, Solomon's temple was actually filled with this incredible cloud of glory when it was dedicated. This was the very presence of God, as it were, manifest in some way that you could recognize. But here's the thing. 
Remember, Isaiah is writing at the time of the exile. Before the exile, God's cloud of glory got up from the temple and left in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. In absolute disgust at Israel's apostasy, God left his own temple and had never returned. Even after Israel came back from the exile and rebuilt the temple and dedicated the temple and sacrificed and did everything that was supposed to be done, nothing. But now, John says, get ready because God is coming back and everyone will see his glory. Not just the high priests who enter into the Holy of Holies. We will all see the glory of God, he says. So that's the first part of John's incredible testimony to the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees have a follow-up question, if you like. They want to know, well, John, why are you baptizing? And his answer is simply, I baptize in order to reveal someone much greater. Ominously, John says, and he's already come. He's among you. You just don't know who he is yet. John's baptism was calling for radical repentance, but its purpose was to reveal the coming one. And John repeats that again the next day. It's not clear as we move to verse 39 whether this is the first time that John has met Jesus or not, but now verse 29, he shifts everybody's attention firmly onto Jesus. This is the second part of his testimony. Let's have a look at how he does it. I'm reading from verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So very explicitly, John now declares, here he is. Here is the one who has been, I've been sent to reveal him, to show him. And here he is. And as he describes Jesus, he refers to four very important Old Testament features. The only way to really understand Jesus, as we're already getting, is to know our Old Testament well. We need to truly grasp these figures from the Old Testament. First of all, Verse 29, Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's a title that resonates, I think, all the way through the Old Testament. Most generally, you know, there's a whole temple system where there are lambs for sacrifice. Very familiar in Old Testament worship. Sins were wiped out with the sacrifice of a lamb. What was happening was that the animal would die in the place of the sinner, so the penalty for sin is death, but the lamb stood in the place of the sinner as a substitute who bore the wrath of God for sin. But here's the thing. Do you notice that John says, this lamb of God will take away the sins of not just the worshipper in the temple, but the world. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, including us. There's one other Old Testament Lamb of God that's worth thinking on here as well, though. Do you remember back in Genesis 22, Abraham took his son up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice? 
And young Isaac asks a pretty obvious question. Dad, where's the animal to sacrifice? They had none. But much to Isaac's relief and probably Moses too, God provided one in his place. As Isaac and Abraham up on Mount Moriah saw the Lamb of God provided, here is the Lamb of God. Something to ponder. The second Old Testament identification John makes is that Jesus is the one of the Spirit. He is empowered by the Spirit. You see verse 32. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him probably referring to the moment of Jesus' baptism in water by John. So Jesus is the one upon whom the Holy Spirit remains, just as Isaiah prophesied in his chapter 11. The Holy Spirit stays with Jesus and empowers his ministry with wisdom, understanding, power and knowledge. You know, throughout the book of Isaiah, it's a massive book, God's servant is almost always referenced as being the one empowered by the Holy Spirit. But more than just possessing the Holy Spirit permanently, John also says in verse 33 that Jesus will baptise with the Holy Spirit. So uh, reading on in John 1, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. So whether baptism here means sprinkle or whether it means fully immerse, it means that Jesus will give the Spirit to other people in a way that utterly transforms them. Jesus' water baptism, sorry, John's water baptism is symbolic. But Jesus baptising with the Holy Spirit, that's the real deal. That's the substance of all of the Old Testament promises about the work of the Spirit in God's people. At the agency of Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, will change the hearts of God's people so that they'll inwardly want to obey God, to honour him, to live for him. They will delight in God. They will have hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. Well, the climax of John's testimony is in verse 34. Most emphatically, John says, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, there's a problem. If you're carefully looking at the Bible in your lap, the NIV that St. Andrews offers you doesn't say that. Do you notice it says, this is God's chosen one. So what's going on? The NIV, it's a great translation, one of the best ones. And the scholars and the editors who put it together, they have strived to convey the meaning of the original Greek as nearly as they can. So why did they translate very obviously the words son of God? Why the chosen one? Why did they do that? Well, most likely because at this point in John's gospel, that term the son of God doesn't mean what we think it means you see when we use the term the son of God we usually have in mind that second person of the Godhead Jesus who is fully divine uh, we've got such great Trinitarian theology of God incarnate we sort of by default go oh well, son of God that means second person of the Godhead in the Trinity 
John's prelude has already been affirming of that truth. But in the Old Testament, that wasn't necessarily so. The title Son of God or Sons of God was used in the Old Testament of all kinds of people, of angels. The nation of Israel was called the Son of God. Israel's king, he was the Son of God as well. All kinds of kings in the line of David and Solomon were referred to with that title. And so the translators here are trying to suggest that John the Baptist is really saying, look, here is the promised descendant of David who will restore Israel and who will rule universally just as all the prophets have told us. He's wanting to say, here is Jesus, the one who is commissioned to rule for God. John knows he's only a signpost and he wants everybody to know that here is the chosen one. Here is the one that they've all been waiting for. And as John's gospel unfolds, we are going to come to understand this greater reality that Jesus, the Son of God, is divine. Truly, he is dearly loved and he has a unique relationship with God the Father. But we're also going to learn that we are sons of God. Jesus is uniquely son of God. John wants everybody who will hear him to know that here he is, the one who has been sent, who will unveil God before their very eyes. Here is Yahweh coming to his temple. This incredible testimony that John has made at a singular point in time has an enduring effect. In a sense, John's words echo down through time to all who will hear them. It's like a royal commission, and here is the testimony of the witness, and you can't hear this testimony and do nothing. You must respond. You can't be unmoved by this. So John's message speaks to us. Turn back to God because he's in our midst. And as we sit under God's word today, we know a lot more about Jesus than John's first hearers certainly did. We actually have that incredible luxury. We know all this stuff. We know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That he is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And our privilege requires us all the more urgently to turn back to God. So our first challenge is actually to ask, do we believe this? Here is John announcing the first coming of Jesus. But Jesus himself says, I'm coming back. Do you believe him? That he is. We don't know when, but one day this world will stop and our lives will stop. And there will be nothing more to do. There will be nothing else to be achieved. Nothing more to worry about. Nothing else to save up for. All that will matter on that day is your relationship with God. And so our second challenge, are you ready? Just as John the Baptist declared, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for God's arrival, John's gospel calls us to be ready. Ready? 
how do you get ready for God to live among you? John's answer was straightforward. You repent. You turn away from your sins. God is going to come in all his glory and all his splendor. And the right response right now is repentance. So we sit at the back end of 2018. John implores us to turn away from our sin and turn to God. I can't speak to you about your personal situation, but God's Holy Spirit, even now, may be showing you the sins that you need to turn away from. Listen to the Spirit. Acknowledge your sin to God. Don't pretend. Be honest. And when you confess your sins, ask God to help you to change. Ask for God's Holy Spirit's enabling to make sure you don't continue to defy God in whatever way it has been for you. You know, sin has a corporate aspect to it as well. Collectively, I think we should consider which sins characterize us as a community. Are we indifferent to God? Are we merely consumers of religion rather than active disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we have God's love for the people whom we live amongst? Do we show his compassion for the lost, for the hurt? Do we welcome strangers? I think that truly hearing John the Baptist's testimony calls us to prepare for the Lord's return, for his coming a second time. God is going to come into our midst. And so it is good and right that we prepare ourselves with true repentance. Do you know what the brilliant news is? The beautiful thing right now is that God stands ready to forgive. His grace expressed in Jesus' first coming, climactically at the cross, assures us God has already done everything that is necessary to wipe away all of our sin and to enjoy His presence. Forgiveness is ours. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will you pray with me? I'm going to give you some space in the, in the quietness of this, this room, just a few moments, for you to do business with God yourself as you reflect back over the year past. Think quietly on those things that you would like to bring to God so that it may be completely forgiven. Tell God those things now. Our great God and Father, we thank you for providing a lamb for us, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, takes away our sin. Thank you for him. Thank you that as we've pondered his true identity unveiled before us, that he is the one endowed with the Spirit, the one who gives the Spirit, the one who is your true Son. Help us walk moment by moment, day by day, in his grace. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.